everyone has some sort of a closet that has become too small. A closet is no place to live, and I want to support as many people as I can in stepping out of that prison into the fullness of life that is waiting for them on the other side of that door. This is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching. Join me in listening to these coming out chronicles. Get curious about their stories and then go see what good things are waiting for you on the other side of your closet door. Today's coming out story is quite different than most of the other stories you've heard so far, but it's one that I think is really important. Linda Lopek is an incredible person. She overcame some incredible obstacles at a very young age, some of which she'll share in her story. But I wanted to fill you in a little bit on the backstory of all that she's accomplished in her life so far, and especially before this event that she's going to share with you. At 17, Linda became the youngest person in the history of finance and banking to design and lead a major technology change for a major bank. At 17, can you imagine? In 1982, she left an 11-year successful career in corporate management to start her own consulting firm, and in 84 was named by Financial Post as one of the top five entrepreneurs under 30 in the nation. She's gone on to help thousands of people, thousands of entrepreneurs in particular, to build their businesses. And it's just incredible to hear who she is and what she's had to go through in order to do that. So I hope you enjoy this coming out chronicle. Linda Lopek, it's so lovely to have you on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. It's really wonderful to be here. Awesome. In more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, I think we might get the backstory on that comment shortly. Um, will you fill us in on what is the coming out story, kind of the nature of your coming out story that you want to share with us today? Well, first, I, I wanted to say how happy I am that in your podcast and in your coaching, you are shining a light on all kinds of closet stories, including many that aren't related specifically to LGBT challenges. And I think we're all living in closets of some kind, sometimes even more than one, and many of our own making. So in, in taking this broader worldview, you've made a space for political and casual and even humorous contexts from life. And, you know, really coming out is only about self-disclosure of our secret behaviors, our beliefs, affiliations, tastes, identities, things that have happened to us uh, that we are hiding because we fear astonishment and judgment from others or we feel that if anyone was to know this about us it would bring us public or private shame and we want to avoid that right yeah you've really captured the essence of it yeah so i think you're doing very important work 
and uh, I'd like to thank you for including my story in your portfolio of interviews. Uh, I don't know which aspects of it your audience would find particularly interesting, but um, I do know that uh, back in 2009, I had had, I'd been in a terrible accident that was caused by an impaired driver and it changed a lot about me and forced me to face a lot of things about my life prior to the accident as well as after when I was recovering from my uh, injuries and had to deal with a lot of permanent impairments that are really not much fun. Uh, and essentially, it changed the essence of who I am and um, I had to let go of things that I didn't really want to let go of and find new ways of being in the world. Now, many of those things that ended up being permanent impairments are very difficult to hide from others. And so you adjust your life accordingly to mitigate the risk of being publicly shamed and I think from that point of view I do have an somewhat of an understanding of what it must be like if you are queer and hiding who you are from the world it's a hard thing to do and I think it it leaves a, a pain in you that resides deep 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 in your soul and I'm sure that um, while I don't have a lot of things necessarily in common because of having had a different life experience prior to this, the feeling, the human feeling of have, feeling that you have to hide and apologize for who you are is, it's, it's not tenable long term. And so I'm really glad you're doing this work because the people who come to you for coaching and support who maybe struggle with whatever closet they're in will now be able to find their way out of it. And it's only when you open the door and leave the closet that you can really experience life full head on, which is what you're entitled to just by virtue of the fact that you're on the planet and whatever has happened to you in the course of your life, whatever that might be, is is not a reason to shut you yourself away yeah bang on <laughs> so tell us more about do you want to give some details about the accident and like what happened to you what you lost <clears throat> well uh it was interest there's been so many interesting dimensions to this experience really and it surprises people when I describe it as a really fascinating gift that that just keeps on giving actually <laughs> uh, it's not a gift you would choose for yourself though but you know I was just driving down the highway on a really beautiful day in the fall it was in early October 2009 and uh, a car that was coming from the opposite direction at a very high speed uh, 
crossed the center line and ended up driving straight through my windshield. And that, and then of course, after that, the car behind me also hit my car. So I actually got hit twice, but the, the worst of it was the vehicle coming through the windshield. And that left me uh, trapped in the car, uh, unconscious. When I regained consciousness, I remember being extremely terrified because um, when we're watching Hollywood movies and there's a crash like that, you almost always see the car exploding shortly after the car comes to rest. And I knew I was trapped in the car. The car was filled with smoke. It was really, really hot. And I, I knew I had been burned, but I didn't know how that had happened. And I was remember being extremely angry in that moment and thinking, I can't believe, well, actually, at the moment of impact, I was thinking how sad this was going to be because someone was going to have to tell my two children that their mother had been killed in a car accident. And right after thinking that thought is when I blacked out. When I regained consciousness again, <clears throat> the, in the immediate instance, I was very uh, shocked to regain consciousness because I had sort of a sense that, of what happened. And, um, but then my next thought was, I can't believe I've bloody survived this accident. I'll need to be burned alive in this car. And I was really, really terrified in that moment. So it was a combination of anger at being trapped and anger at having more life-threatening shit to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't very much fun at all. In the end, I was able to escape the vehicle and fall onto the road by the side of the highway. And it did not blow up as I was expecting, thank God, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> because I was, I could not get far enough away from the car since I couldn't walk or anything. And um, it was just kind of a, a downhill nightmare from there, really. So the accident itself uh, left me with catastrophic brain and spinal cord injuries, which have taken the better part of the last 10 years in rehab to overcome and essentially the accident wiped out everything about who I was prior to the moment of impact and I do remember one one other interesting memory from the moment of impact too as the car came through the windshield the axle of the wheel was torn off and it hit me in the chest and I rem and it it for all I know that could have been what knocked me out but when it hit me in the chest it hit me right where the seat belt crossed and so the axle didn't penetrate into my chest wow. which was really really lucky but I remember what the impact of it and thinking this must be what it's like to be shot when you're wearing a Kevlar vest <laughs> what our thoughts come into your mind in these moments I don't know but I remember that distinctively and I remember blocking out right after the the feeling I'd been shot I didn't know that it was the axle that had hit me in the chest until later <laughs> but um, I remember that moment of impact 
That's probably a really good uh, advertisement for wearing your seatbelt too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could be, could be. And so you basically lost all your memory and all like you used to know a lot of languages and yes, lost yeah. them all. At the time of the accident, I spoke five languages, not all equally well, and 10 computer languages. But um, in the process of re-engineering my brain, I only relearned English, but that took a long time, actually. And it was a lot of work. But uh, I'm doing okay now. I don't have the same vocabulary that I once had, but at least if somebody's speaking to me, I can understand what they're saying now, and I can remember it long enough to come up with an answer. And that took uh, quite a number of years to achieve as well. And you have to do all this work, and you don't know if it's actually going to be a, uh, successful or not. But if you don't do the work, you'll never find out. <clears throat> and you're not even aware of all of the things that you've lost right away. Um, I, I, I knew that I couldn't understand people right away. And I knew my name uh, at the time. Uh, but a couple of weeks before the accident, I had uh, released the, the latest book that I had written. And I couldn't read that book. I, would, I had no idea what it said. I knew that I had written it because I recognized my picture on the cover as being me, but I couldn't have answered any client questions about the content of that book. And in fact, I couldn't answer any questions about it until 2017. So that was like eight years later. And the first thing that I did was update the book <laughs> because after eight years, uh, there was some content that needed some refreshing. But I didn't know for the whole time during that eight years while I was in rehab, I did not know if I would ever be able to understand my own work again. I can't imagine how devastating that would be. It was, you know what, it forced me to come to terms with a lot of things about myself that weren't that pleasant. For example, you know how some people are very attached to their looks and then as they age they have a hard time with their evolution as a, a being uh, and maybe they take some hits to their self-esteem or start to feel unworthy well i had to come up to terms with the fact that i had identified very closely with my being an intelligent articulate person and so then i wasn't for a long time because like I said it took a long time a lot of work until I could understand people again I remember the moment that I realized I couldn't read and reading is one of my very favorite activities so <clears throat> in that moment I was completely devastated it didn't occur to me that um, not being able to read wasn't a total loss because I still could have consumed books uh, through audio content, but I didn't have the cognitive capacity to connect those dots. So in my world at that moment, I just thought, that's it. Uh, never, my, my favorite pastime has been taken away. And then I remember after, sometime after that, I realized 
wasn't just that I couldn't read, I also couldn't write. And that was devastating as well because most of my life, well, since the 70s anyway, I'd been a writer and my work involves a great deal of writing. So that was pretty hard realization. But my second thought right after I realized I couldn't write was, well, now I'm going to be able to revisit my childhood when you're in grade school and you have all those dotted letters around the top of the classroom and you're going to be learning cursive writing by tracing these capitals and lowercase letters. And I thought it would be quite an interesting experience to learn how to write again as an adult, knowing that once upon a time, <laughs> I had already learned that. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of an interesting observation. And what saved me conversationally was, well, at first, when, when I saw people's lips moving and heard sounds, I knew they were talking to me. But I didn't really understand what they were saying, and I couldn't participate in the conversation for quite some time. But um, I still remembered how to spell. And so as my brain healed and I, I got further down the road of injury recovery, and I could still type. So I would try to remember as many words as I could, and then I'd get on Google and I'd try and look them up and see. I was just like piecing fragments all over the place. And that was how I started relearning English. And then eventually, of course, I had speech therapy and, and other aids to help me along with that. But that was how I did it originally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know... It, it consumed hours and hours every day, but I couldn't do anything else for myself when I was trapped in, in the room anyway. So sitting at the computer was something that I could still do. And that gave me a little bit of hope that if I worked at it hard enough, I might be able to recover enough cognitive capacity to return to work in some shape or form that was all i really wanted at the time <coughs> and uh so now i have but it did take a long time and i don't have the same capabilities that i had before obviously but uh, one of the encouraging things there were so many discouraging things the doctors had to tell me um as relating to this in, uh, industry, injury. But one of the encouraging things the first doctor told me was that it was, I that I hadn't forgotten everything that I knew how to do before. All I had a problem with was uh, an inability to access it. So that is why I had to go through, I went through 18 different rehabs to re-engineer my brain. And it takes a long time for, for new dendrites and neurons to connect and form so that you, you can access things that you knew, but you're just accessing it in a, in a much different way than you would before. <coughs> and then, of course, um, I had other goals that I was pursuing through injury recovery as well. 
So I wanted to return to independent living. That had been very important to me my whole life. I wanted to be able to walk again uh, and stand up and, and you know take care of myself. I'm not very good at that. I, I'm, I'm more of a waddler than a walker, but <coughs> I can stand up and I can get from point A to point B in my apartment. So I'm happy about that. Um, it's, I don't know, just an entering year 12 of rehab and I'm still working on stairs, going up and down stairs, it's been 12 years. Um, I wanted to be able to dress myself too. And that was another challenge. I think I told you before about this, this story. My first goal was wanting to be able to put on my own pants. <laughs> and um, so I had to fail at that 1,265 times. And then finally, uh, I was able to do it. And then, of course, the milestones of injury recovery are such that after you have that first success, doesn't mean the next day you'll still be able to do it. So now, every morning still, when I go to put my pants on in the morning, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. I just have to trust that because I could do it yesterday, I can do it today if I stay calm and really concentrate. And so I have pants on, you'll be happy to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a Zoom interview, so really anything goes these days. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I, there's a lot of things that I miss about the old me, and that was one of the hardest things, I think, to come to terms with. I always thought that if I worked hard enough and wanted it badly enough, that I, I would just, you know, go through this period of misery, but I would get back to being my old self. And it's a long time and a lot of psychiatric help to come to terms with the fact that that was never going to happen. Mm. So I would just have to accept the, the me that I am now and see that that person is just as worthy and matters just as much as the person uh, who was driving that day. It took a long time to come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. I can see some parallels there with um, like wanting, wanting my old straight self back that, mm -hmm. you know, was, normal were you straight or did you just want to be straight right right my I'll, I'll say straight with some air quotes of okay. like i was straight passing and yeah, yeah passing yeah probably wasn't even passing that well if we're honest <laughs> <laughs> but you know like that old life that maybe was easier and then being like oh, i don't want to have to choose this life or i don't want to receive this life mm -hmm. that is what I have or what I am right now and mm -hmm. like wanting to keep that at bay. And, and really that's, that's where all of our frustration, anxiety, stress comes from is that gap between receiving what really is mm -hmm. and pushing against it. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can just receive what really is, the more life flows and is less stressful. But that's easier said than done. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
This episode of the Coming Out Chronicles was brought to you by Centered Life Coaching. We help you know yourself, to free yourself, and be yourself. So you can live the fullest expression of who you really are. Stay tuned, there's more to come in this episode. It, it does take a lot of work, that's for sure. And um, I might not even have struggled with that as much as other people that were in rehab because my personal philosophy has always been, and I 100% believe this, that every single thing that happens to us happens to us for our better good. Mm-hmm. And I knew that in my past experience, the less it felt like it at the time, the greater the gift or gifts were going to be contained within the experience. And I have a perfect example of that because when I was born in the 50s, early 50s, I was born with a skeletal um, mal- uh, malformation called clipophile syndrome. And it made life pretty hard for me as a child, and it's still hard now, actually. You never get used to being mocked when you're out in public or um, being criticized for being out in public, even though it's like been my whole life for almost 70 years, doesn't get easier. However, in this particular accident, if I had not had clipophile syndrome, I would have been completely decapitated instead of just internally decapitated <clears throat> because it just so happens every, every case of clipophile syndrome is different. In my case, my head is attached to the thoracic spine instead of the cervical spine. And instead of cervical vertebrae, I have the, the, a massive fused bone structure multiple vertebrae involved all the way down to t3 i think it is and my head instead of being attached the way your head is is held on to my body by these really thick web webbing ligaments on either side and that's what held it in place so even though the seat belt cut through my head it, it could not cut through those webs or the bone, and that's why my head stayed attached. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and I realized that right away too. Like when I was looking at the um, the reports from the X-rays and the various examinations you go through after, I realized right away that all those years <laughs> that I was mad about being born with Clipple Fall syndrome uh, was actually necessary to save my life because, mm-hmm. you know. There's, I think there's a lot of truth in, in whatever's going to happen to you in life has already been decided and you're just here living your destiny. Mm. So, um, and everything that happens to you is preparing you to be able to handle what's going to be coming up next. So all of the negative experiences, while I wouldn't have chosen them for myself at the time, they all uh, prepared me for the work of recovering from these injuries. And I think that um, because of those experiences, I had an extreme uh, level of mental strength 
and um, one of the downsides of, of trying to deal with the aftermath of the accident was like many people I believed that because I had insurance that and I was obviously injured <laughs> that I would get the income loss benefits and the medical support that I would need to recover and that turned out to not be the case mm -hmm. so that was another five-year fight that I had to undergo <clears throat> just to have my legal rights upheld and, and even then they they weren't all the way but you know you have to let that go too but had I not been as stubborn a person <laughs> as I was I might have capitulated but I just couldn't let those bastards win. <laughs> so, um, and, and they do go to extreme lengths to um, just to get you to abandon your claim. Mm. Unfortunately. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, here I am today and uh, I'm back at work. I'm having a great time working with my clients. I've, I feel more creative than I've ever been in my life, hmm. which is great. And I've been able to make accommodations for most of the challenges that I have, not all of them. Um, the next thing that I have to work towards is, because I, I only have the use of my left arm, I can lift that up. Um, so I. I, and I can only dress myself if I wear stretchy clothes because you wouldn't believe all the gyrations I have to go through to get <laughs> dressed. But anyhow, um, I have this closet behind me that has uh, my pre-accident clothes, which are very beautiful. My, my power clothes from when <laughs> I was a successful executive and whatnot. I'll never be able to wear those clothes again. And I don't know why I didn't get rid of them yet. They've been sitting in that closet all this time. But now it feels like they're mocking me. Hmm. So I think they have to go. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's a hard thing because when I box those clothes up, it'll be like uh, getting rid of a part of myself. Mm -hmm. It's a part that's not coming back. And, and I've partially accepted that but obviously i'm not 100 percent there mm -hmm. or the clothes wouldn't still be in the closet because like i said i'll never be able to wear them again they're beautiful but looking at them just makes me feel really bad about mm -hmm. myself and so they're not doing me any good and they could be doing somebody else a whole lot of good mm -hmm. so i gotta find a new home for them it's on my list i haven't gotten around to it yet <laughs> mm. <clears throat> Oftentimes in coming out stories, the coming out has an effect on the family. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering, like, what has this been like for your family? Um, well, that was a, a huge disappointment for me, actually. You know, in uh, movies and in, in many books, when a loved one is injured or ill, and their life is threatened you often see scenes where you know everybody rushes to their aid and uh, is there to support them and encourage them and stand behind them and i didn't have any of that so 
and it was interesting too because um even my friends that you know you have your friends and you think at least your best friends are going to be there for you uh, and um it was hard for them um, i don't know if it was hard for them because there is such a difference between the current me and the previous me, or if it was because they needed desperately to believe that insurers would, their insurers would protect them if they were in an accident like mine. And they just didn't want to accept that what I was going through was in fact what really happens. I mean, <clears throat> in serious personal injury cases like this, um, people make a fortune it's not the person who's injured there's like an entire industry built up around personal injury where everybody makes a huge killing on on the injured person um but the injured person does not benefit from that at all really and uh it's just left to pick up the pieces of their life or whatever is salvageable but uh, and my children of course, I'm sure it was hard on them. Their father brought them over to see me after I had been brought back to the place where I was going to stay. And of course, I looked terrible because I was all black and blue and my face had been smashed in. And actually, my face and arms were burned. Now you don't notice it so much. But in the summertime, the... Um, the burned areas don't tan anymore, so I, I take on a, a really unusual speckled appearance. <laughs> it's not very attractive whatsoever. Uh, anyhow, um, they were in their mid-teen years when this happened, so <clears throat> they, it's not like they could drive and come and see me. Um, I had to give them up to their father thank god they have a great father <laughs> to take care of them because i couldn't take care of myself never mind them how so, old were they then um let me see uh my son would have been 16 or 17 and my daughter would have been 15 or 16 something like mm -hmm. that and um so they still needed to have a parent looking out for them and uh, their dad stepped right in there and he he took over that so that was good I didn't have to worry about them and I didn't want to tell them everything that I was going through because there's nothing they could do about it and I think uh, as a parent you have to protect your children from things that they can't control or help you with. So a lot of the struggles that I was having, we kept hidden from them. But one of the, the really difficult challenges of, a, I have a deep brainstem injury, and one of the more difficult challenges of that was something I had no experience with at all. And that was that it, it often results in uh, flipping that switch. We all have a, a switch where we're wired for survival. And when that switch gets flipped, <clears throat> you become 
uh, more wired for self-destruction. So mm -hmm. you have incredible suicidal compulsions to deal with 24 seven. It's really hard. And I didn't have any experience with that kind of a thing. So thankfully, uh, I had a fantastic medical team. And one of the people that I owe being alive to today would be the psychiatrist who was assigned to my case. He had uh, a, a, a great reputation for being able to work with um, severely brain injured people and help them deal with all of these psychological challenges that come out as a, a result of all this. And so <clears throat> we worked on that so hard, but we reached a point, I think it was around 2017, 2018, where it, there was a real risk that I wasn't going to be able to overcome this particular challenge. So he said, finally, you know, I, I really needed to have a, a chat with my son and daughter and explain to them that there was a, a, a greater than 50% risk that I would kill myself. And it was important for them to know that it wasn't uh, a choice and that we were doing everything we could to prevent this outcome. But at that point, I was really losing the battle. And mm -hmm. so I didn't want them to be caught off guard. So we had a family conference about it and I told them, I explained to them how it was all connected and what we were doing about it and uh, how, how hard it is to fight that compulsion. And um, so um, the main thing I wanted them to understand was that if I ever lose this fight, because I'm going to have to deal with this the rest of my life now, and if I ever lose it, I wanted them to know that it wasn't that I didn't love them enough to stick around, and it wasn't that I hadn't given it everything possible to fight against this so <clears throat> you know then we all cried about it and hugged it out and and whatnot and now we're just carrying on just got to take it day by day it's all you can do really yeah i think that that's a really tender topic right now like in covid times yes. i have a hunch there's going to be more and more suicidal yes. thoughts and yeah it, you know there's a lot of um extreme pressure on people and and worse than the extreme pressure that the pandemic has imposed there isn't um the distractions and the ameliorations that we used to have to cope with these stressors mm -hmm. and similarly there's no end date in sight mm -hmm. so it's not like you can say to yourself, well, I just have to be strong until the end of the month, and then we can, you know, get back to living a normal life. Mm -hmm. That's not what's going on here. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, and all kinds of pressures contribute to uh, suicidal risk. And uh, one of the things that I did when I realized I was going to be having to fight this stuff for a long, long time, I started a, a Facebook page called Understanding the Suicidal Mind. And I've, I've got a, a fairly 
um, large number of people that are uh, followers of that page and many of them suicidal themselves for all different kinds of reasons because there's lots of different mental illnesses that contribute to that. Um, lots of people are depressed or dealing with crippling anxiety. Uh, all different kinds of things bring a person to that point. And I, I, at first, too, I didn't understand why I had to learn so much about this and uh, work so hard every day to overcome it. And then in, I think it was 20, 2015, my very best friend took his life. And I felt really, really bad that I wasn't able to help him i understand the pain that he was suffering and i don't blame anyone who loses the battle because you cannot imagine how much strength it takes to fight this fight unless you've actually been there yourself and i wouldn't wish it on anybody but Ed, there are thousands hundreds of thousands of people dealing with this kind of thing Anyway, and then, if that wasn't bad enough, my uh, cousin's son also killed himself a couple of years ago. And so um, I thought, okay, well, I must have had to take on that part of the injury so that I could become really well educated in suicidal depression and then be able to support my friend as long as I was able to and help my cousin come to terms with the loss of her son. Mm. Um, because it's a very difficult thing for uh, the, to, the average person to even comprehend. They can't understand it. And, uh, and I get that because, because, again, you know, like I said, we're hardwired for survival. The idea of taking your own life is incomprehensible to a person who doesn't have to deal with it. So, yeah. What advice would you have for someone that's feeling like they're quickly losing the battle? <clears throat> um, I'm actually writing a book about that. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, the, I have had many, many, many challenges uh, in the last 12 years with it. And at the end of it, it comes down to the understanding that we don't live in the inhale or the exhale. We live in the space between breaths. And so that's the title of my book. And in the space between breaths is the place where you choose to continue or not that's where it happens or well, in my experience that's where it happens and <clears throat> the taking that next breath slowing down the inhalation exhalation process and occupying fully occupying the space between breaths is where you get some relief from the pressure to take your own life. We think that 
that we we can't go on or we don't want to go on for whatever reason <clears throat> but it's in that space that you make the choice to take the next breath so another thing that i did um, as part of my rehab therapy in i think this was in 2015 as well i did a, a navy seal um training thingy uh, challenge Navy Sea Challenge Navy Seal Challenge is what I did, and uh, it was a five-day challenge, and eighty percent of the people in that challenge quit on day one. <laughs> day one, the the requirement um, we were working with this guy. His name was the uh, Commander Mark Devine, and our first challenge on day one was we had to do a thousand push-ups. And that took me four hours and 22 minutes to finish. I couldn't feel my arms for a week. <laughs> and just remembering it now, my arms go all rubbery. <laughs> remembering what that was like. Weren't you just saying that only one of your arms really works? Yeah. Well, I can, I can lift this. I can lift up my left arm and I can move my right arm, but I can't lift it up. Okay. So, but you can do a push up. I, yeah, I can. Oh, when I wasn't doing military style push ups, too, by the way, I was doing uh, girl style push -ups. on your knees, yeah. on the knees. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I was able to do that. But he told us that the first thing that would happen when he, when he gave us the assignment was our first thought was going to be there's no way in hell I can do this. And sure enough, that, that was my first thought. Well, my second thought was, okay, well, how am I going to get this done? Because there's no way I'm cropping out of this challenge on day one. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and um, so I figured out a way to get it done. And like I said, it took me a long time to finish. But it wasn't a race. It wasn't about finishing. It was about, I mean, it wasn't about how long it took you to finish. It was about finishing. And... I was on a total high from it for such a long time because mm. I wouldn't quit. But one of the things that he told us too was when you think you cannot do another thing, you've only used 40% of your mental capacity. Mm. So that was a very valuable lesson for me because it was, I think, well, it was two years later that I was having that conversation with the kids. And at that point, I was surviving in that space between breaths because in those darkest, darkest, darkest moments, um, I would remember, okay, you think you cannot take that next breath, but you're only 40% of the way there. So, you, you know, you just, you just carry on. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I had learned too, which was fascinating well, I learned a lot about depression. It was, it's actually a very fascinating illness, but it's, it's a, a hard, hard one to carry too. And I would not wish it on my worst enemy <clears throat> because when you're in the deep grips of you, you just can't move. You cannot take that next step on your own behalf. And um, I had written about a, a description of it um, where I, I gave it nine different levels. And 
then I reviewed that with the psychiatrist actually, because it wasn't the way the traditional literature described depression, but having experienced it myself, I thought, well, I should just document this. Mm. Before the accident, I'd been a very good technical writer. So (laughs) I documented the nine levels and, and I documented it from different perceptions from like what you're feeling physically what you're feeling emotionally how how you are interpreting that in your brain and um so that was an interesting experience actually um it doesn't make every every day easy but i think or i've tried really hard to make the best out of it and to put the experience to work for the benefit of others the best that i can and i think that it's it's actually in a lot of ways it's made life hell but in a lot of other ways it's been very enriching so i think my takeaway from that is everything that happens to you has pluses and minuses and you have to find them you just have to find them you have to push yourself a lot of times Mm -hmm. and you can't you can't blame a person who loses the fight we would never do that to someone that has cancer for example so how i described it to my kids was that when a person has cancer They can take all the treatments in the world, take all the drugs that they're prescribed. They want to live just as much as anybody else on the planet. And they can fight, 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 do all the right things and still lose. And depression is like that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good correlation. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you would not judge a person who died of cancer the way we judge people who die by suicide. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. But I've been fighting against that on my uh, suicide page, but mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be a long process of re-education, and it's been uh, an unfortunate outcome of the pandemic is that suicide rates will likely be rising yeah. as the for all, all, all different kinds of reasons yeah so you mentioned at the beginning that it's the gift that keeps on go- giving like was mm-hmm. that tongue-in-cheek or have there really been gifts that you've noticed from oh this? i've had all kinds of of gifts come from it we were talking earlier about uh how painful it is when you the supports that you think will be there for you when you're going through a difficult life challenge are not there. Um, One observation I made was that the people in my life who had the least were there for me the most. They gave me the most help. I had seven years of no income and my no support for my medical care services that I needed because until we just before we went into the court process, the insurer kept denying that I had any injuries at all. <laughs> I didn't need any of these things. 
And then, of course, a couple nights before we had to face the music there, they sent the letter saying they admit that I had been catastrophically injured. <coughs> Anyhow, um, a, a company who knew of my work with entrepreneurs, who um, I did not know anything about them, they had a program where they supported uh, people who needed help. And uh, their employees decided to support me. And so every month I received a check that was just enough to pay for my room and a little bit of food. And that kept me alive for the time when I was fighting my claim. Without those employees, none of whom I ever met, um, but without their letters of support and encouragement and that monthly check, I don't know what would have happened to me. Uh, so that was a gift. And um, like I said, uh, I think that, well, I had started my Smart Start program long before the accident. Actually, I, start, I got the idea for it in 2000 and I built the website for it in the spring of 2007. We did our launch on October 3rd, 2008. And the first year was awesome. We did 5.7 million in helping other people with their business dreams that first year. The accident was October the 5th. So one year and two days after the launch. Um, it was a real test of all of the business systems that I put in place because of course the, the business continued to chug along without me. The only thing that uh, couldn't continue, of course, was the one-on-one -on -one coaching, but um, other things continued on just fine. And then uh, I forget where I'm going with this because I completely <laughs> disconnected. I don't know what I was going to say. I was talking about that company and that company oh, that yeah. helped you. Now I remember. Okay, so <clears throat> when when I was coming to realizations that I couldn't read, I couldn't write, I couldn't think, I couldn't talk, I couldn't walk, I couldn't take care of myself, I thought, well, I'm gonna have to. Well, at first I thought I'd have to learn everything all over again and i have had to learn a lot of things but what i knew about um, business and system design and process design and all the things that i put into smart start like the doctor had said i didn't lose that i only lost connection to it so for all that those years we were working on re-establishing the connection and that worked out really well so i'm very happy about that but as i was doing the re-engineering work I thought, now I will be an even better coach and even better business teacher. And I believe that that's the case. And the reason I think that is, is because now when I look at business marketing and all the things that I teach, I was uh, revisiting it with a beginner's mind. Mm. And of course, most of the clients that come to me um, they are learning. They, they have ideas that they want to develop into productive businesses. But unlike me, when I started Smart Starter, I already had a very solid 
past career as an executive, as a finance specialist, as a systems engineer, as a process developer. So I didn't have to acquire those skills. And I'd been a, a very successful writer up to that point as well. Most of my clients coming in now, they have some of the things that they need to build a successful business, but not all of them. And of course, they're at all different stages. So some people are beginners in the copywriting aspect. Some people are beginners in the marketing aspect. Anyway, the advantage of having to reconnect to all of the things that I knew was now I was doing it from the point of view of a beginner's mind. So the second thing that I did after updating that book that I couldn't read or answer questions about was I redid the Smart Start program. And I, I distilled all of these complex concepts to the lowest common denominator of simplicity that I could come up with. And I'm not so sure I would have been able to do as good a job of it had I not had the accident because we bring to our work and we bring to our life the filters and biases that we've been living with all this time. So it's easy to assume that what's easy for me to understand is easy for anyone to understand. And that's not the case. So if you're going to be a really good coach or a really good teacher or even a really good writer, I think you need to be able to take big ideas and distill them down to their simplest form. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. What have you been doing helping entrepreneurs? Um, I'll buy build million dollar businesses for them or with them. It's a smart start is a, it's a it's like a I call it the a trifecta <laughs> trifecta program. <laughs> we uh, we make it possible for entrepreneurs to take their business ideas and create sustainable value and income from those ideas, assuming of course that their idea has um economic viability but that's always the first thing that we check out before they enter the program <coughs> and then um when they're working with me to build that business they're working uh, from a collaborative point of view so there's a coaching component there's a consulting component and the philanthropy component that i had built in to the program was one that allows people to have access to high level expert guidance without having to pay super high cost for that. And so all I did when I originally set up the program was I had helped lots and lots of um, businesses build um, their dream and I had asked the people once they achieved their dream with my help to make it possible for other entrepreneurs to build their dreams as well. So the that helps minimize the cash outflow from the clients who are accepted into the program because they only pay a small percentage of my professional fees and then their sponsor takes care of the rest. <laughs> 
and puts that back out into the world. And in that way, we are able to help a lot more people than I could ever just help on my own. So for example, when, when I put the program online in the year before the accident, we didn't have anybody on the list. I didn't have any um, clients <clears throat> in the Smart Start program yet, but so we're starting from zero. And now we have reached about 265,000 entrepreneurs in one way or another through the various programs that we run and have helped them build their business dream. Amazing. And all from someone that had to learn how to read again. Yeah. Well, I didn't have to at the time I built the program. I only had to learn that after the fact. Yeah. You you helped a lot of those people after you learned how to read and talk again. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So inspiring. And, and that, you know, for, for people who are thinking you can build an online business and have that, that kind of uh, community size right away, I I should uh, say that's not the case. But the growth was slow. I think in the first year we had 100 people. Um, around, well, a couple of years ago, thinking back to what our circulation was, I think we were at 90,000 at the beginning of 2018, or maybe it was 19, yeah, 20, maybe it was 2019. I'd have to, to look at the records to be able to say for sure where we were at. But once you read it, reach a tipping point, You don't really have to do much more work. Things just start happening on their own. (laughs) So it took, let's say that it took me nine or 10 years to get the first 90,000, but it only took 18 months or so to get from 90,000 to (laughs) 265,000. But you know, what happens to a lot of entrepreneurs is they just don't have the patience to keep working and working and working without seeing an immediate reward uh, and sense of grat- gratification. <clears throat> so they don't trust the process. I trusted the process and I trusted the process when I was in rehab too. So, and, and I remember too, uh, I had to take all of these uh, cognitive assessment things where they measure, uh, how your brain is functioning. Well, right after the accident, I was only functioning at about 10%, totally useless. After five years of grueling hard work and a small fortune that I spent in medical care, I was only at 33%. And I remember that 33% result and I was absolutely devastated. And I just thought, I'm never going to get to where I need to be to go back to work. If after all this time, I'm only at 33%. I mean, I couldn't do half the shit on that exam. But anyway, I decided, well, you can quit or you can keep working on it. And I decided, because I'm not really a quitter, (laughs) as the insurers found out, um, I just kept working on it. And now today... I'm really only maybe 75, 80% of my former self, but that is enough to do my work. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very happy about that. I would still call you a genius at 75 or 80%. So, (laughs) 
Thank you. That's very kind of you. But you know, the funny thing is, um, it's hard when you're the injured person because you always know how easy things were for you before. It's easy to take that for granted, you know, and uh, nothing is easy for me now. Uh, but just the fact that I can do the things that I need to do and every day when I wake up, uh, I don't know for sure if I can still do it, but so far, history has shown that when I get up in the morning, I will be able to walk from the bed to the bathroom, which is on the opposite side of the apartment, by the way, um, on my own power. And I will be able to put my own pants on and sit down at the desk and get to work. So I love my work. I, I just love what I do. Well, if people are listening and are curious about your work and wanting to join in, where's the best place for them to find you? Our website is smartstartcoach.com. And uh, that's a good starting point. And we're also on Facebook, of course, and I'm on LinkedIn under my name. So anyone who would like to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, I'm on LinkedIn as Smart Start Coach. So it would be LinkedIn backslash in, no, linkedin.com slash in slash Smart Start Coach. You'll find me or you can find me by name. And our Facebook page is at Smart Start Business Club. Awesome. So we've got, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand people over there too. And is that Suicidal Mind Facebook oh, group still active too? Suicidal Mind, yeah, that's on Facebook too. Uh, I'm not as um, frequently posting there as I once was, but I try to keep on top of that community as well, at least once or twice a week. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Feel free to cut out any parts that you want, because I see by my clock here that it's been an hour. (laughs) Didn't feel like it. No, we get raptured by the story. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Coming Out Chronicles. If you enjoyed it and you think it would be helpful for someone else, please share it with them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on social. I'd love to support you in the next chapter of your coming out story. I can help you know yourself, free yourself, and be yourself. Until next time, this is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching.